So during the course of the last week, I found myself sorting through files in my desk. And you know, my files are filled with a lot of quotes and teachings and um, just the pieces that have been collected over the years. And it was in some way like a journey through the last 15 years of my life. <laughs> and it, it kind of, tonight's talk comes out of that journey. Um, just, it's, I think it's a little bit of a medley. I don't know if we're going to have a real strong theme in this. So that's kind of a warning to all linear types that <laughs> prepare to jump. <laughs> you know, um, I'll do my best to string it together, but uh, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and it all began when I came across just this description I had of an experience some years ago when I was living in Australia. And I was living there, and there was a, a cyclone coming. And having grown up in Canada, I hadn't experienced cyclones before, so it was a new experience. And it was pretty uh, an intense experience. And you know, it began with warnings that the cyclone was coming. And it's sort of like, oh, a cyclone, what do you do? And you know, I'd, I'd heard about people putting tape on windows and you know, start you know, preparing, battening things down and, and listening to the radio about uh, you know, the, the storm coming, getting closer and closer. And then the air, I mean, it got so oppressive and heavy and oh. It was, it was really like, you know, it felt like you could just cut the air. And then, you know, as you can feel it, it's like it's building and building and building. And then, you know, listening to the radio, is, you know, and it was a strong cyclone, or reasonably strong. And, and then, you know, as it's just not far up the coast from us, suddenly the power's out, you know. And, and of course, I hadn't realized that would happen in some way. It's like the, the radio was going to guide me through this experience, <laughs> but all communication gone. And then um, communication gone, and then it was like it just stopped. It was the eye of the cyclone came right over where I was living, which was right on the coast. And it stopped. And I, you know, I didn't know anything about it. And it was like suddenly the sky cleared, the sun was coming through, and people ran down to the beach. You know, it was like a totally different day, totally different experience. And it's like, wow. It was, it was really, and the, you know, I felt like what had been so oppressed suddenly was like buoyant. No, and, and then it passed, and the other side of the storm came, and it was just like a whopper. <laughs> really strong winds and rain. And, um, and somehow the experience reminded me of practice in two very, very different ways. One way in that in my life there had been a way of trying to practice as if in the center of the storm and trying to do that through a really fixed fo focused concentration that brought about the stillness that was in that center of the cyclone and then you know trying to keep everything else away you know and it really was an exhausting tiring way of practice that at time at times when it, you know the conditions were right and the, there was really the connection with the stillness through um, 
concentration, very beautiful state of mind. But as soon as I would leave a retreat and then, you know, just the bombardment of the sense doors that happens that was just like, ah, suddenly right out in the, the, the storm of it all. And so, you know, it reminded me of my, my attempts to find that center through a place that one I could attach to. Um, and, and doing that through a focused concentration. But it also, in a more healthier way, uh, kind of speaks to me about finding that center of the cyclone in the midst of activity, in the midst of movement, in the midst of the changing nature of conditioned experience. And, you know, the center of the cyclone is connected to the whole turbulence. And, and you know, it, it for, for me kind of just then was more an analogy of the mind finding that quietude, that peace, but amidst chaos, amidst movement, amidst change. And that has been really helpful to me in that it has helped to guide me towards a way of practice that is not just something that is experienced in uh, a really refined place of practice, but a way of being with experience, a way of looking at the mind that can be the mind in very quiet stillness that can happen in the midst of a retreat, or the mind that is present in the busyness of a daily life. And so it really helped uh, it, it helps me to break down that barrier between formal practice and a life of practice. Uh, I once asked my Zen teacher, Hogan-san, about uh, practice in daily life. And, you know, he just, in his mind, it was seamless from being sitting in the midst of a retreat to being in the world. And, you know, he said, let the world be your map. And, and so what in my own life has been really helpful is to, within retreat experience, within these really refined conditions, look to see in this simplicity a way of looking towards the mind what is happening in a way that that can be transported into our daily life. Of course the experience will be different because we do have what we call meditative experiences when we spend so many hours a day in silence, when we're not interacting, when uh, you know we're working in quite a refined way. But that, that, that simplicity and, and in just seeing the workings of the mind needs to be adaptable to our lives. So tonight in this medley, it's really just touching upon a few things that have really helped me in my own life.
Certainly, practicing with simplicity has been fundamental. That the practice uh, being, you know, in my own really short terms is relax, be aware, stay interested. And, you know, that relaxation, you know, just a letting go of expectation, wanting, striving, and just really relaxing both mind and body. And, you know, certainly a relaxation in the body can lead into a relaxation in the mind, where, you know, if we just sit and just let tension melt away. Don't try to force it, because that's, you know, having some agenda. If the tension is there, just the relaxing with. Relaxing with whatever our experience is right now. No, just, it's relaxing, receiving, allowing. As we do this, to simply be aware, to recognize what is present, to whatever in our experience is happening. Just that sense of receiving this as it is, with a non-interfering, non-judgmental mind. The sense of letting be. Letting be, these words have been so helpful to me. I find it you know, more helpful than the sense of letting go. Because letting go can have some agenda, some sense of doing to it. We're letting be. It's just as it is. Just this moment as it is. In its totality. Not needing to push away some aspects of experience. Not needing to build on. But just to let be. Be aware. And one of the things that we find is awareness is natural. And when the mind is undistracted, awareness is there. It just needs to be recognized. It's not created, fabricated. Just recognized. And then be interested. So it's not like blindly sitting, but having an interest in body and mind. Sometimes the sense of relaxation feels foreign, <clears throat> hard. It's like, relax. And it's just a sense of tension there. I've, at times, I use um, a form of exploration, a form. So I know on one level that a sense of contentment really re- leads into relaxation and acceptance. And so I would, I played with, okay, how can I practice contentment? And it was like just giving the mind an invitation to be contented with what is now as it is. And so it, it's, 
it was like well, whatever the mind would come up with was can there be contentment with this contentment with this and then, uh, another way that i at one time used to help kind of invite this sense was to just stop i it was used as a technique and it was just um i sat and I, I just said to myself, okay, just stop. Well, and so that meant don't go forward, don't go backward, don't try to do anything, don't try to change anything, just stop. And each time the mind went, just stop. Just stop. <laughs> it was really helpful. It really revealed the mind that is practicing in order to get was like, no, just this. Because we so often believe in really even subtle ways that something else is needed. That there need, we need, we, you know, there's just this kind of inherent striving prefer, for perspective perfection, <laughs> I can't even say the word, <laughs> the striving for perfection that, that leads to a form of grasping and the just stopping with what is right now. This. And you know, sometimes remembering the phrase, what we need is already here. Again, it's just like the, that jaw of grasping, just settling back. What we need is already here. So these were little ways that it was just to, to help invite Relaxation, receptivity, and acceptance, which is one piece that we work with. The other piece that we work with is that of awareness, alertness, that brightness of mind, the recognition of what's happening. And we do this, I mean, as I said, that it is natural. It is there when the mind is undistracted. It's often unrecognized. But often we're lost in our habits lost in habits of confusion, not seeing clearly, being, being mystified or enchanted or absorbed into all of the different experiences, the thoughts, the fantasy worlds, all of the different universes that cre- get created within the mind. And then there, you know, it's like being in this own little universe that's totally fictional, and not really recognizing 
what's present. To help strengthen or bring forward, be able to see, we use interest or investigation where, you know, it's just that kind of spark that's like, oh, what's happening here? And, you know, just like in the turning of the mind in that little way, what's happening? It's not interfering, but it's just like, oh, spark of interest. It turns the lights on. It lights up the field of awareness. Sometimes we might find that uh, the asking of questions can be quite helpful. That um, there can be a tendency at times to, there's relaxation, acceptance, receiving, but then the mind kind of becomes spaced out within it. You know, where spaciousness turns to spaced outness, and then the alertness isn't there. And so just as a means of, of turning that light switch on, asking questions that really uh, relate to what's happening. You know, it could be asking the question of, um, do you need to listen in order to hear? Do you need to look in order to see? Do you need to focus in order to be aware? Is awareness static or new in every moment? When we ask these questions, It isn't a process of trying to figure out. This quality of investigation really needs to be light and unencumbered, not coming with the baggage of trying to prove a point, but to be looking with a freshness of mind, an openness of mind. We really let the mind be so open, available, that the truth radiates from within that. Tony Packer, who um, first started in Zen practice many years ago, uh, and who now has a center in Springwater, um, wrote a very wonderful book called The Wonder of Presence. And she says, the essence of meditative inquiry is not obtaining answers, but wondering patiently without knowing. We may have heard spiritual teachers say, the answer is in the question. I used to hear Krishnamurti say it time and time again, but in the beginning I didn't understand what he meant. You cannot understand it by trying to figure it out. It has to reveal itself clearly in the questioning itself. When it's open 
and innocent, a wearing without knowing. This is the quality of investigation, a wearing without knowing, without having a concept or construct in the mind, but sensing into. And you know, out of this sensing, we begin to really perceive, to know, to understand experience. We begin to really see both the specific characteristics of different experiences, you know, to be able to discern hardness from softness, um, hearing from seeing, uh, you know, just all the different ways, different unique characteristics to each experience. We know sadness from frustration, from joy, from contentment. Uh, we, We also begin to see the universal characteristics. For those of you who are just here, that was when I talked about impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, and the impersonal nature of all experience. And that's what all conditioned experience has in common. And you know, the, the mind, in this quality of investigation, this is where, where the wisdom really starts to come in. We, we start to find this stability in the mind that can stay with experience, that um, that then out of this we find a continuity of mindfulness. And through, you know, moment after moment of mindfulness, the mind receives information, data, and it breaks the spell of delusion. And innate wisdom comes through. The innate wisdom is nothing that we force, can force, can try to get. It really will come about from this sense of relaxing, receiving, being aware, and interested. It really requires a radical trust. Because we have to let the mind go into the unknown. Otherwise, we are bound by concepts, constructs in the mind. And that's always within the realm of what we know. But to find true wisdom. We can use constructs to turn the mind towards experience, but we can't keep letting them cover over the experience. And there is an element of trust, faith, the courageousness of heart in doing that. To be able to live our lives awaring without knowing, without always carrying around the idea of how we think things are. 
there is ways that our trust can strengthen. You know, it, it's like, in one sense, we take baby steps to begin with, where just for a moment we let things be. Just for one moment. Hmm. We didn't poof, disappear. The world didn't crumble and shake. No, it was just poof. Just this. And then for another moment, we just let things be. And in these moments, we start to feel the ease, the peace. What it's like to not be in such reaction to experience. We start to see the refuge of mindfulness. How that, and for me, it was so dynamic when there was really strong emotions. And, you know, say it was a moment of rage. And then just a moment where the mind knew it was just rage. It was just a conditioned state arising that felt, had certain qualities, you know, really specific qualities to it but that it too was impermanent, that it too was unsatisfactory, impersonal. And, you know, these moments where that was seen was like, whoa. I mean, you know, that was the sense of the center of the cyclone, the relief, that, that by not being in this reactive state to the experience, ah, there was ease. When we start to see these moments, this helps us to really develop some sense of trust, where we see that we're not trusting in our willful effort. You know, because if we have to trust in that willful effort, we know sometimes it's there and sometimes it's long gone. You know that that's very unreliable. We see that we're not trusting in, you know, the personality of who we think we are and having to get it right. But we're really trusting in something that is very accessible. We're trusting in awareness itself. That awareness that is there but just needs to be recognized. And then awareness becomes purifying. You know, that it's just like, oh, we see. It's like we were maybe repeatedly doing something that's harmful, hurtful, and it starts to get dispersed with moments of mindfulness, of knowing, of clear seeing. And then at some point, the mind sees 
the identification, the clinging, the, the grasping, the entanglement, and the suffering of. And it also sees that there's nothing really there in the way that we were perceiving it. And the wisdom comes forth. Sayadaw Utejaniya, Burmese teacher, often uses uh, the expression that wisdom does its own work. And that happens through a stability of mindfulness. And this is where our part comes in. To work with being present as often as we can, when we have the choice. Simply to be aware of what is happening in any moment that we can, wherever we might be, and doing that over and over and over again. Within that process of coming back over and over and over again, it's really important that this whole process be simple and easeful. It can be so often be that we try to measure our mindfulness by how many moments there were together, and that is a sign of whether we're doing good or not. Um, For me, I found that that was a very painful way to practice, and that if instead, in a moment where there had, uh, I'd been lost, and then it was recognized, that simply begin again right there. And then it was just easeful. It's like just picking it up, and there's the delight in the mind, another opportunity to be aware, another you know, potential in this moment, a, mo- a moment where the mind is not lost, rather than a beating oneself up for having been lost. Within this process, I also found it very, very helpful to have a sense of humor. (laughs) You know, that so many habits replay over and over again. And, oh, we can get so, at times, discouraged, or can um, be really hard on ourselves. We can practice in such a grim way. Uh, it can be so heavy. I mean, it's like we're taking the weight of the world on our shoulders, and, and it's just, it's too much. It's really too much. 
But I learned from a couple of people in my life, probably many, actually many when I think about it, because I've always been attracted to people who help me to laugh. <laughs> and uh, one person that did this for me was a chiropractor that I met. It was when I lived in Australia, too. And he was this older man. I, I, who knows, he's probably the same age as me now, but <laughs> at that point in life, he seemed older. And he was kind of wizened up, and he, he'd been a chiropractor all his life. And he had different techniques. He used the stretcher thing that he rack he put on. And it was, it was quite a, a leap of faith to go there. But he was brilliant, too. He was a true healer. And one of his techniques was he would get you in some really contorted position, and then he'd crack a joke. <laughs> and then as soon as you laughed, he would go, whoop. <laughs> it was so effective. You know, in that moment where you're just laughing, there is that openness. And then he'd come in, Hogan Sen, the Zen master that I practiced with, he also used that same technique, you know, where, you know, get you laughing and then point something out that was really like, whoa, okay, <laughs> wake you up in a second. And then uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, a current teacher in my life, uh, he, he just has this delightful presence and, and humor. He just, he, he, it's what he, he really skillfully uses humor to keep people in a light space. He says if we uh, are sitting and listening and getting really serious, it's like you, know, you can start even just sitting with a sense of expectation. You know, you're going to hear something that's going to really do it. And so it's just light and playful. And then amidst all that, the simplicity of just bringing one's attention to what's important. So, you know, at times, I think I said this one morning in the reflection, uh, you know, I just used the line, smile at your mind. You know, you see yourself caught in a habit that you have been caught in 100 million times before in your life. And it's like, you know, you could go down the track of, oh, my God, here I am again. Look at, this is just proof. I can't do it. I'm no good. You know, and it's just bah, so heavy. Or you can just smile at your mind. Just see what it's doing. I, can you believe what this mind does? Ah, how can we take it so seriously? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's really amazing. I remember sitting on retreat and, you know, amidst of a long retreat. And then I would have some little incident happen in my day, which, you know, maybe um, I sat down at a meal and somebody just mistakenly took my fork. I could replay that for the next few days. I could watch it happen over and over again in my mind. I could make up endless stories about it. And it was just, you know, some little incident. And we really see on retreat just what the mind does in the realm of the thinking mind. And it's phenomenal. And, you know, just somehow the scene of that, can you really take it all so seriously? It gets hard. I mean, I think that's a real benefit of long retreats. 
we just can no longer take all of these thoughts so seriously. We can no longer take them as truth. We just see. And the humor comes in, I mean, you don't want it to be a sense of humor that's dismissing of experience. But just that, that turning and seeing it in a light way, rather than getting grim, caring, holding, lightly. I love, uh, I think it was the name of a book and a movie, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And that somewhere to me, that's life. Um, when, when we're not caught in all this stuff. So keeping it simple, relaxing, being aware, staying interested, holding it lightly. These have all been very helpful to me. And then, you know, there's certainly been times when the entanglement has been very strong. And there's needed to be more skillful means. And then, you know, it was discovering what helps the mind to become more buoyant, gladdened. What helps to find the natural joy of the mind. That somewhere, you know, the stickiness can get so sticky that to try to just be with it through pure mindfulness, when mindfulness is not strong enough. No, it's just that, you know, the the habit has so much momentum. Um, There has been times where there's been a needing to see where, or how to work, how to bring in more skillful means. So just to touch on a few of these skillful means... to looking to ways that help to bring back a sense of ease and naturalness. And so for me, hearing has been really helpful in this. When uh, just started getting too entangled in experience or suddenly you know, finding that practicing the to do, to get, to become, and just needing it, it's like oh, complex in some way. Just, uh, uh, just sitting and listening. Hearing. Because sound, uh, really, when the mind is undistractive, points towards the naturalness of mindfulness. It's easy to see that we don't do anything in order to hear, that the mind is simply undistracted. And so it's just like giving a spaciousness to the mind and that it, it invites that sense of relaxation but it has that spark of awareness. In, you know, and it's just a very simple way of connecting with the moment. Or for me, it's been really helpful to go out into nature. 
uh, just because nature for me is a place where there has been a sense of being at home. You know, just being, feeling a part of life. And, you know, just somewhere, whether it's either seeing natural sights, hearing sounds, there's not so much judgment in the mind. This is in my mind. It could be different for you. And that's, you know, it's, we really have to find out for ourselves what really helps. I remember once telling someone how supportive nature was. And they looked at me and said, but I'm terrified of nature. So we have to work with our own tendencies. But for some of us, being in a natural setting helps that relaxation, that sense of ease, a sense of refuge. And it can just bring about that uh, you know, sense of awe, wonder in the mind. You know, just to see a setting sun with that openness of mind. Um, it's just, you know, in a moment we can be totally touched, awed. The mind is stilled into silence. And it's not that we want to rely on nature to do that. But when we're feeling out of sorts, it helps bring about that sense of naturalness. And, you know, also within nature, it's, you know, just seeing the lessons of nature, seeing of the impermanence, you know, just to, to watch a leaf fall from a tree. And, you know, just to see that in one moment that just happens. And, you know, it's the same with all experience. It arises and passes according to natural laws. And so, you know, it's like just beginning to trust in the natural flow of life. At times for me, it, uh, metta has been really helpful. You know, where I might have had a sense of just beating my head against the wall in some way, you know, really struggling. And there's no sense of acceptance. There's no space within it. And then, you know, just for periods of time, using the metta practice to uh, just help to soften to allow, to help bring in a friendly relationship to experience. You know, we don't do metta to get a better experience, but because it helps us to find this way of meeting experience in a friendly way. And, you know, sometimes in doing the metta when it's been hard, uh, it can just have a, a sense of just the hard edges softening, allowing, accepting. You know, even practicing metta when the heart feels cold and hard, it can, you know, it's just like, just, it's touching that heart with kindness and awareness. It's not demanding that it be different than what it is, but it's just that whole way of meeting experience in a kind way. There's been times when I've really, you know, for whatever reasons was in um, <laughs> a deep, dark pit <laughs> where, where it just was like, whoa, this is tough. And, you know, just in that moment, uh, having a sense of being, you know, I just used the image of being in a womb of unconditional love. 
and just that sense of feeling held there, accepted there, in that tormented state. Very close to that is something else that has really helped me. And it is in some way having a sense of putting my head in the lap of the Buddha. No, where, where it's just a sense of surrendering that, you know, it's like having watched the mind fight and struggle and try and get and then just oh, surrendering to that which we feel is wise, is knows. Er, is knows? <laughs> That's not very good English. <laughs> Right in there is a sense of devotion. Touching in into that devotion to truth. Maybe it's personified through the Buddha, a person. But maybe it's just that that devotion to that deep inner calling. That sense of possibility that has some resonance of truth. And just that possibility to surrender to the process of that, to know that we can't force it. Suzuki Roshi A great Zen master once said, moment by moment, completely devote yourself to listening to your inner voice. And, you know, at times it's just been stepping back, not trying so hard. Really putting the trust in the lawfulness of life, the purity of our intentions. Putting our trust in awareness rather than the personality, the little doer that we so often get caught in. Trusting in our innate goodness. Yeah, it's unrecognized a lot. But so many teachers, so many great beings have pointed to it. And the practice is what makes it accessible, available. The practice is what helps it to be recognized.
It's the journey of awakening. Turning on the lights. So remembering the center of the cyclone where that stillness, the awareness, not separate from the activity, the movement. looking in any moment with any experience. Any time, any place. Relaxing in the process of being lost and being present. Being lost and being present. Doing the best that we can and surrendering to the process. Trusting. I'd like to close tonight with a teaching from Ajahn Chah, a great Thai force master. It's called Let the Tree Grow. The Buddha taught that with things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated karma. Yet your exertion or effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it. Just as you cannot force force the growth of a tree you have planted, the tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water, and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows up is up to the tree. If you practice like this, then you can be sure all will be well and your plant will grow. Thus, you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant and be responsible for your own. If the mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is wrong view, a major cause of suffering. 
Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your karma. Then, whether it takes one or 100 or 1,000 lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. Actually, it just reminded me of uh, being on long retreat and, and um, it was using this sense of practicing to be at peace or practicing that the effort uh, the effort was such it was just a sense of doing doing what I could and letting it be enough and that it led to sleeping peacefully at night, in a sense. There was no regret. There was no more or less. It was just doing the best that I could and letting it be enough. Letting the unfolding karma happen in its own time. So let's just sit for a moment. Closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.